Hi, it's Michael Smirkanish. Welcome to Book Club with Michael Smirkanish, a collection of Michael's favorite interviews with authors from the last 30 years through today, on the air, on radio. What sets my book club apart is that I actually read the books. Book Club is now in session. Laura Coates is my colleague both here at Sirius XM POTUS and on CNN, but that's not how I know her best. I know her best because I have just read her memoir, which is called Just Pursuit. It's getting rave reviews everywhere from the New York Times to Rolling Stone, a black prosecutor's fight for fairness. Laura, congratulations and thanks so much for being here. I really appreciate it and I enjoyed the book. I really appreciate you having me. Thank you so much. It's good to see you in this format. I feel like I know you so well. And Where's your memoir so I can even... <laughs> have more about that that I can read about and also sell you some cookies. My, my yeah, daughter's a Thank you for that, saying so. that. I love that. <laughs> so the very first line, the pursuit of justice creates injustice. What's that mean? Well, it's the truth. And it really means that sometimes in our world where we think about justice as a real binary thing, the idea of a, a trial and a verdict, either it's a conviction or it's an acquittal, we often think to ourselves, that's the result. And as long as we get to that result, you will have justice. But when you try to achieve that particular result or think about it in that really narrow way, you sometimes find yourselves believing that the end justifies the means. And so I talk about in the book and write about different examples how that means sometimes creates collateral damage for those who have called in and, and been victims of crimes or those who are in the periphery, but nonetheless important. And each story, I mean, it's really a trial memoir or a trial attorney's memoir, and each chapter is a standalone story. And I have to say, the one that stands out the most is Manuel. Manuel is chapter one. He's a middle-aged Latino man, and his car has been stolen. What happens? You know, that was a very important chapter and one that I chose to begin with because, as you know, in my commentary, I suffer no fools. And so I did not want to exclude myself from the scrutiny or the system as well in that. And, you know, as a run-of-a-mill car theft case, which frankly is pretty light work for prosecutors, particularly when you have the suspect, um, the person who was actually the victim, the person whose car was stolen, reported the crime, what we want to have happen. You are a victim of a crime, you report it, society is offended, you are the victim of a crime, and we can prosecute. And this person who had stolen the car had a legitimate rap sheet, and a lengthy one at that. And so there is an incentive to make sure people who've committed crimes are held accountable. Well, in doing so, as part of a routine background check that we all do, when you have somebody who might come into a courtroom, you want to know, do they have an active warrant? Is there a reason to alert the marshals? Is there a safety concern? And when I ran a background check for this victim whose case I just inherited, it pinged that he had a deportation warrant. And it was decades old. He'd come as a teenager. He'd otherwise lived a now law-abiding life. He had switched, not just even sneezed in the direction of a police officer. And here he was now um, with that pinged deportation active warrant. And I had to wrestle with the choice of whether to abide by my office's policies, which was to alert the authorities, alert immigration officials. And in that, it's a prime example of the notion of, look, when you think about, yes, has, is he illegally in the country? Yes. Has the person who committed the crime, is that person who we think about the car thief as an actual legitimate criminal? Yes. But in thinking about these two instances, one felt more fair to be able to pursue prosecution against. 
and to exercise one's law enforcement function. The other one felt like an injustice was occurring, a lack of fairness. And you think about it, even if wherever your policies are, your thoughts on immigration policy, you know, one of the sad realities is people are often wrestling with the choice of, do I continue to be victimized and exploited by an employer or maybe an intimate partner with, with abuse and be able to remain safe in the shadows? Or do I come forward and report and risk deportation? And that's not a choice we should have to make in this country. So I, I totally get how you must have been feeling that day. And I would like to think that I would have felt the same way. I don't know. But on the other hand, when you think about it, your client, we're your client. Your client is the United States of America. He's a guy who 20 years ago crossed the border illegally and then presumably ignored some kind of outstanding warrant. There was no choice in the end. Isn't that it? There, it's true that there is the limited choices of what my directives were. But Michael, I find that at times my moral compass points in a different direction than what orders look like. And I grapple with that as a lived experience of a Black woman, as a, as a, as a person who's civil rights oriented, as the idea of knowing, again, there sometimes is a gap between what is right and what is lawful, what is unlawful and what is, you know, the wrong thing and what is the right thing. And we have this chasm. And in the end, you know, I talk about the idea of having to be faced with the choices. And I don't want to in any way suggest that I was feeling the same level of, um, of consternation and sadness as the person who, in fact, was going to be deported. Obviously, in the grand scheme of things, whatever emotions I was grappling with pale in comparison to the sense of fear that he was facing. But this idea of just thinking about in terms of, well, who had clean hands and who had unclean hands? Again, that looks like a binary choice. It's sometimes the law has more of a nuanced approach to or ought to have a more nuanced approach to. Consider, if you will, a case of somebody who is, you mentioned the client, and I was in private practice. I had personal clients, and so I was advocating on behalf of that person. But I also advocated as a prosecutor on behalf of the people of the United States. And so the people of the United States do have an interest in having accountability for people who have committed crimes. And we do weigh and balance the more egregious crimes against the other. And so if our society is comfortable with the idea of, well, look, you advocate for us, but does that mean that the next person who might be undocumented for whom a crime is committed against, that we're going to say, you know what? Although the people of the United States do not want to have a crime happen in the future to another person, we're going to think that it's better for you to remain quiet because you're undocumented than it is for you to be vocal and get, get the it. person who committed a crime in jail. I'm, I'm just saying to me, like everybody's got to stay in their lane to a certain extent. Your job was to be a prosecutor in that case. As a policy matter, do I think a guy who's been here for 20 years paying taxes, leading a clean life ought to get bounced? No, not necessarily. And, and, and by the way, the most significant part of that whole story to me is that even though he then uh, has a brush with the immigration authorities, he still cooperates with you or with your, your office to prosecute the person who stole his car, which told me he's even more the kind of guy that I'd like to have as my neighbor. Let me give you another example from the book, because interestingly, it also relates to, to a car theft. And mm -hmm. the very noble character in this story, and, and by all means, you tell it, is the woman whose car was stolen who now recognizes, well, who is the defendant? And when she hears a bit about the defendant, like she wants to come and offer a very unique witness impact or victim impact statement. 
you know, we know that victim impact statements are ones we ask people who are the most aggrieved from a particular crime. You know, obviously society is offended. It's United States versus the person who is the defendant. But we ask for people to come in and explain what, how did this particular crime uniquely impact your life? And it can be very, very riveting. Oftentimes the assumption is the person's going to come in and ask that the book be thrown at them. And this person spared no mercy, therefore I will not extend it. But this was an instance where I was asking a woman to give me a the, kind of the routine victim impact statement in terms of, do you have a right to give one? What do you want to say? Do you want to come in? And she was pretty reluctant and was actually deciding she wanted no part of it initially. And then when she realized that it was a 20 something year old young black man and she herself had raised her children, she was a black woman, um, she wanted to come in and provide a victim impact statement that gave me no really sort of um, heads up as to what it would be. And I was so curious as to what it would be and what was it about this person's age and what it was about this person's race and position that she wanted to aid. And she was very clear in a demonstration of leniency is realizing the intersection of race and our justice system, which is more often than not a legal system, striving to be a justice system. And she explained that second chances and redemption essentially should be as much a part of the calculus as any other aspect. And that she wanted no hand in continuing what happens when people are not, particularly black and brown men in this country and women, not afforded what their white counterparts often are. And so it was a moment where I write in the book, you know, there are moments of tragedy and there are moments of triumph and there are moments of inhumanity, but this was one I think people needed to know that people are well aware of what it is like to extend humanity and extend leniency even off the bench. And then, Laura, it puts you in an odd position because here's here's the quote unquote victim. And she makes this mesmerizing presentation for leniency to the court. And now the judge looks at you like, "Okay, government, what's your Mm -hmm. position? And you felt confined. You know, the judges oftentimes, you know, they will look to the government. We have an extraordinary benefit of the doubt, as you know, Michael, and that's given to us as members of the United Attorney's offices and Department of Justice. And we are aware of the credibility and we are aware of what it would take to lose the credibility. And oftentimes what that means is not choosing your battles wisely or essentially cashing out on all of the credit that would be given because it then is imputed on your next colleague. You pay for the mistakes of your predecessors and so will your successors. And in this case, it goes back to the idea of, look, I knew that as much of a person that this woman was, a champion, they had counsel to be able to advocate for this person. The next case coming up, there was also a sentencing, would not have a champion would not have somebody who would be eloquent, let alone an advocate. And when I stood up as a person who said Laura Coates on behalf of the people of the United States, that necessarily included the defendant. And so, you know, it's, it's a quizzical thing to think that you're only an advocate for the people in the outside of the courtroom. But if the constitutional rights are impacted of the defendant, if there's not advocacy, if there's not effective representation, I don't think it's appropriate to ever capitalize on being the beneficiary of the benefit of the doubt when you could help. And so I was left in that chapter to talk about whether I wanted to expend the capital and credibility or preserve it for somebody else who would need the champion. So I had a similar reaction to the 73-year-old woman in the cloth coat that I had to Manuel, (laughs) which is Mm -hmm. you made me think in the case of the story about this this very unique uh, victim impact statement, I actually went back and reread the chapter because I wanted to know, and it had gotten past me in the first go round. Well, wait a minute. Tell me again what this guy did. 
quote, the defendant had led officers on a high speed chase, injuring one and then fleeing with a significant amount of drugs in his possession. Asking for lenience here would have made the judge question my judgment in other cases. So I agree with how Laura Coates gets to the end line. You know, Manuel, you got to do your job. You know, it's it's not your call. And similarly, in this case, by going along with what would be the normal guideline, I understand the emotional tumult that these type of cases would have presented to you. But I think you really had no choice in the end except to do your job. Am I wrong? Well, you know, yes, you do have, there's always a choice in the sense of whether, you, and, and whenever you have discretion, there is the ability to make a choice. Now, is it a consequence free? No. And that's really the battle. It's not that I would have, I, mean, I could have made a choice when it came to Manuel. I could have faced disbarment as well and said, you know what? Right. Well, that's the choice You'd I have been made. Aiding, and ab- so, aiding and abetting. Right. I mean, so you have these ideas of the choices you make and the question that many people I think wrestle with is who they think they would be in a moment when those choices are asked of them, what they would actually decide to do. It was really an introspective time to think about, you know, is it, is, is it as easy simply to robotically say, all right, well, here's the law. It must be followed. There we go. No emotion. And it's not that the emotions make you a weaker prosecutor or that you somehow are unable to uphold your oath. I did uphold my oath. It's that I think it's important when you don't have the luxury, and I never wanted the luxury of shedding who I was at the door. I think it's important to bring in the person that I am in a holistic fashion and consider not only because I think it's the right thing to do, But also, Michael, strategically in the law, it's also a good idea to bring your whole self. We're talking about trial juries because you're voidering people who have come from the community who are going to come with their whole selves, their preconceived notions, their bias, whether they know it or not, their emotions, and whether the person they're asked to evaluate's behavior resonates with them. Who do they see themselves in? And so as a matter of, you know, for my own morality, I look and bring my whole self in. As a matter of litigation strategy, it's also impactful. Look, the, the sort of injustices that you write about exist. I'm not doubting any of that. I'm just making the observation that the person whose job it is to correct them, I don't think is the prosecutor. I read the book and I said, Laura Coates should run for office and do something <laughs> about, you know, certain of the issues that that she brings to light. I also remember that early on in the book, you tell the story about how a colleague, I forget the word choice, but you'll know exactly where I'm going. But a colleague warned you and said, hey, you know, nothing good comes from this. What, what is it that I'm thinking of? He said it would be a human misery. It would misery. be a constant parade of human misery. And and I thought he was naive really for the reasons you just articulated the idea. Well, a prosecutor would be the person to be in the position to deal with that and resolve that misery. I mean, I thought of misery in some respects, intellectually in the sense of somebody had been victimized, justice would look like a verdict or the pursuit of justice, and therefore that would be resolved. But little did I know, but I think about it in terms of, you know, I don't, I, I don't consider myself, nor am I, a naive person or have rose-colored glasses on. But it's the distinction between what you know intellectually and what you understand emotionally and empathetic, empathetically. And I, I equate it, Michael, in many respects to I know what disproportionate impact is. I know what the idea of mass incarceration is. I know the, the um, issues responding to sociology and, and economics and the history of 13th Amendment and beyond. I understand this. But it's like when you're on a, a train track. And 
you're sitting on the platform and you know the power of a locomotive, you know the force, you know that it's going to be extraordinarily fast and you know what ferocity it brings. And then you're standing on the platform and one whizzes by you and it takes your breath away in the reality of that moment. It makes you take a step back and you say, my God, I understand. That's what it's like to go from understanding what the impact of race and bias is on the justice system to actually being on the platform and being able to wield power. It takes your breath away at times. You take a step back, but you still understand the power you have and how you use it is important. Michael Smirconish. Get more critical thinking at Smirconish.com. I want to make reference to one other chapter that was a favorite of mine. And then I have a final question for Laura Coates. By the way, the book is called Just Pursuit, and it's extraordinary, and you should buy it and read it. Um, I assume that criminal defendants who say you got the wrong guy are a dime a dozen. May I just say that you had a case, and it wasn't even your case, and you had to go the extra mile where that really was uh, the outcome. You left me hanging, though. I wanted to know the and I'm going to say lazy, the lazy person whose file it really was. What did they say in the end after you exposed that they gotten the wrong man? And then I want to ask you my final question. You know, I'll disappoint you in the reality that that person sort of shrugs his shoulders and goes, oh, all right. Wow. That was really the end of it. And I and I t- and then moved on to a different office in the in the Department of Justice eventually. And I got to tell you, it's it's that you mentioned the extra mile. What is so incredible to understand about that chapter is that I went the extra inch and the blink moments that happen when somebody for a second brings a healthy sense of skepticism and says, you know what, what if we examine and understand this is a system comprised of humans who are fallible and that sometimes even the best intention officers get it wrong. What if we say for a moment, Maybe you're right. And I extend the benefit of the doubt that I often am a beneficiary of in as a prosecutor. And those blink moments make all the difference. And imagine we're not talking about the end where you and I have had these conversations and interviews with people of those who've been exonerated decades later, the moment that it could have changed something. That's when it was. And it's extraordinary to think of how, yes, how frequently with the presumption of innocence, people will profess their innocence, whether they are or not. Sure. The sort of shaggy, it wasn't me moment. But it was the indifference of, oh, oh, yeah. I and guess the, we almost the, got the, that wrong. The indifference of the judge was particularly unsettling in that case as well. All right, here's my final question. So I'm not giving it all away for free. People need to buy this best-selling <laughs> book and, and give Laura a read. Um, so you go and work for the Justice Department. Actually, you're working in the Civil Rights Division, and then you go and work as a prosecutor. So you had all told like a seven-year career, and yet you see lots of injustice along the way. And that's what the book really addresses. Talk to me about the current climate where in some categories there's an escalation of crime and it comes in the context of a progressive new type of D.A., whether it's Krasner in Philadelphia, Gascon in L.A., Chesa Boudin in San Francisco. If Laura Coates were in that role, you were a big city prosecutor, the district attorney. Would you be going in that same direction as those types, given what you write in this book? I think it's important what they're doing in the sense of prioritizing based on the limited resources we have, what types of crimes to prosecute. And I think it does aid in the safety of officers not to be in a constant police state. 
But I also think that when you're talking about feelings of trust, you have to balance out the trust that the officers want to extend to the people in the community and vice versa. And I do wonder sometimes if decisions not to charge crimes like resisting arrest, for example, whether that's going to be more helpful or less helpful in the long run. If people, the, the problem obviously with all people who commit crimes is the idea of being emboldened to do them again, to be emboldened, I think there's no accountability. They are in fact above the law. And I do worry at times if there's not effective prosecution that it won't be a deterrent. Having said that though, I do think, you know, we are, as, as a prosecutor, I was always like my colleagues, we were expected to be perfect and had no time or limited resource to actually do that. And so if this aids in balancing that and prioritizing the crimes that people feel the most safe, then I think it's a good thing. I mean, what I took away from this is here's what I was feeling on the inside, but outside I went about my job to the letter of the law and I did that which I was obligated to do. Did I get the right message? Yes, but I also want to add, obviously, the constraints of the law, they can be changed. And you mentioned public office. I mean, Congress writes the laws, makes the laws, local officials. There are There is room for improvement and not just I, I the get it. I, just, I guess what I'm, what I'm trying to say is I didn't want you making different decisions. I really thought about mm-hmm. each of the stories you told. I, I, in the end, my heart breaks for Manuel. Uh, I hear what the woman is saying in the cloth coat. But there weren't alternatives. Like in the end, for you, in my view, you had to do what you did. Anyway, you could tell I thought, I read, I thought, you, all the things you would hope well, that someone would. I appreciate it. You know, I, and well, I, appreciate, I appreciate taking the time to read. And I also appreciate the idea of I, what, I, what you've done is exactly what I hope readers will get out of the book, which is what would you have done? Almost a choose your own adventure of justice coming along vicarious with, with me. I mean, the idea of what choices would you have made? And if you are uncomfortable with the fact that, that was there, if there were no alternatives, then think about what alternatives you think should be out there and how you would get there. Work backwards in some respects from what the law is and what you think it actually should be. And that really is an overwhelming way that what I want people to get from this experience. You and I could go on for hours and some of it would be interesting. (laughs) (laughs) Laura, thank you so much. I wish you all good things. Thank you. I appreciate you, Michael Smirconish, and what an independent mind that is. Thank you. Likewise. Thank you for that. (laughs) Laura Coates' book is called Just Pursuit. Hear more of Michael Smirconish on Sirius XM's POTUS Channel 124. Live weekdays from 9 a.m. to noon east or anytime on the Sirius XM app. Connect with Michael on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and at Smirconish.com. Book Club with Michael Smirconish. New episodes drop Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays.